Hi there guys and welcome to today's episode of the Back in Shape podcast. We're going to be talking all about posterior pelvic tilt, uh, how it can affect your lower back pain or how it can influence your lower back pain, just so you can really understand it a little bit more. It's one of those phrases that is banded about quite a lot. We're going to go on a deep dive into that. And if you're joining us on one of the video platforms, be it watching this on Spotify or watching it on YouTube, then we'll have a few little instances where we are getting the spine out to just help enhance the message so you can really understand what I'm talking about. And for those of you that are on audio only, I will do my best to really describe what I'm talking about as we get to those relevant points. So I've got a few notes as well, just to make sure we cover absolutely everything to really make this as robust as possible today. And I wanted to kick things off by talking about what is the normal pelvic alignment. What does it even mean? What are we talking about when we think of normal? Because the first and most important thing is we must identify a normal position. Now, when it comes to the pelvis or pelvic tilt forwards or backwards, normal is in the position in which we have a smooth transfer of weight from our lumbar spine through the pelvic girdle into the hips and into the ground. And for all of these examples, we really want to think of our body from the side profile. So looking at a side on, and if, the case of, if it's the case of sitting, then obviously the hips are going to be out of the equation, so to speak, and the weight will come straight down through our lumbar spine, around the pelvis, and into those ischial tuberosities, which are our sitting bones, and then straight off into the seat, skipping out the legs. So that is the normal position. It can either be tilted forwards or backwards, and the tilt backwards is going to change the biomechanics. Some. It's, uh, it's going to have impacts on the way in which we force transfer, and we'll get into that a little bit later. And as can tilting forwards, but today's topic, we're not going to talk as much about anterior pelvic tilt. That's one for another day. So once we've identified what normal actually is, we want to talk a little bit about how we measure it and why we're measuring. Now here, I am gonna get out the spine because it really will help demonstrate this a little bit better for you guys. As we look at the spine here, I mentioned a moment ago about the spine being on top of the hips, so weight can transfer through here more effectively. But really the pelvic tilt as it's traditionally measured, they might measure some of the back bony prominences here and then the front ones here. And if there's an angle here, then we will infer that it is anterior posterior pelvic tilt. But in terms of measuring it in person, when we're measuring on a physical examination, it's hugely inaccurate. We ignore a number of things, such as the way in which the person's skin is hanging over their body, the amount and lay down of muscle mass, fat mass, and the way in which that person's standing as well. All of these markers, not to mention the fact that you might not actually be pressing on the right part of the bone. You might be measuring from this part of the bone instead of this part of the bone or vice versa, makes for physical examinations of pelvic tilt or a pelvic neutral very, very difficult to do effectively. And a couple of degrees really matter here because the margin for error when we're doing these measurements can be so significant. If we talk about measuring leg lengths, which are commonly done alongside these sorts of things, the margin for error can be two thirds of an inch. Now, two thirds of an inch when we're measuring these sorts of things can result in a posterior pelvic tilt being an anterior pelvic tilt or vice versa. And the, comp the, the, the consequences of that with regards to the recommendations very often, unfortunately, leaves patients doing all sorts of the wrong things because the measurement just isn't accurate. But what are we actually looking at here? We're looking at the pelvic tilt 
because it gives us a view into this thing here, what's called the sacral base angle. It's, you can see if you're joining us on video, you can see that the L5 disc or the L5-S1 disc, the disc between where your lumbar spine finishes and your sacrum starts. The sacrum is the five fused bones at the bottom of our spine, which makes up along with the iliac crest or the innominate bones, it makes up the pelvic ring and fuses on the front of the pubic symphysis. And that creates that cylindrical or circle um, at the base of our spine. That sacral base angle is so very important because there should be a nice neutral. And when it's in a neutral position, everything balances nicely. When we tuck it backwards, those of you that are joining me live on the video, sorry, will see that all of a sudden my weight through the spine goes down behind the hips. It becomes inefficient. It's no longer that the weight of the spine is, trans is, is bisecting the hips itself. Now it's out of a line, literally. So when we posteriorly pelvic tuck, we move our spine and our hips away from one another so they no longer efficiently transfer force. And this has all sorts of implications for the muscles as well. So that's going to be problematic. The most effective way we can really understand this is by taking a standing up x-ray. And that shows us specifically the angle while standing of this sacrum here, and therefore the slope that the lumbar spine is sitting on. It should be a nice smooth 40 degree slope. That's 40 degrees to the horizontal. So your lower back is always sat on this 40 degree slope. And the L5S1 disc is slightly wedged in shape to facilitate that process. By it being on a 40 degree slope, it means there's just the right balance of stability with give at the level of the lumbosacral junction so that we're transmitting forces effectively with a degree of mobility into the pelvis and on into the legs. So that is the very most important part that we must consider is how do we measure it and why are we measuring it? And we're measuring it to look at how our body transmits forces from the spine and down into the pelvis and back up again. And that's where things fail so much. Now, if we think about what the role of pelvic tilt is in back pain, specifically a posterior pelvic tilt, it does three main things. The very first thing that a posterior pelvic tilt does and again, I'll bring the spine out here, is that it creates a flexion at the level of the L4-5 and 5-S1. L5-S1 being most severe and 4-5 being slightly lesser so. And that flexion puts the spine into what is a vulnerable position. It's out of its natural neutral lordosis. The secondary effect of that is that it shunts weight right onto the l 5 S1 disc more so. It drives more pressure through that L5-S1 disc and to a lesser degree the L4-5 as well, just above. And these are two of the most commonly injured discs when, when it comes to herniations or disc bulges or degenerative change in the lumbar spine. Nine times out of 10, if not more, the disc injury is L4-5 or L5-S1. And doing that posterior pelvic tuck pre-stresses those discs and puts pressure on what is, what is very likely an injured structure already and maybe the source of your lower back pain. So you're doing things to continually pressurize that area. The next thing, or the third thing, is that it disengages these sacroiliac joints as well. As we flex, the sacroiliacs flare open a little bit. We can't really move our sacroiliac joints consciously. They're a fibrous type of joint and they don't have much movement, but they do move slightly. And when we move our spine into an extended position, a nice neutral lordosis and beyond a neutral lordosis into backward bending, the joints compress, they load up, they lock in. And when we move forwards, they get a bit more flare, they get a bit more mobility, a little bit more ease to bring the knees up towards the chest. So there's fluidity in motion. And then also think about it. We don't often need 
load-bearing capacity when we're bringing our knees up towards our chest. That would be a movement where we want more mobility. We don't want to be have stability and rigidity in those movements because they're not typically associated with the way in which we would move around and carry things. When we're carrying, we're nice and upright, we have our chest out, we have our core engaged, we have our spine in a nice neutral, so those sacroiliac joints can transmit weight effectively. And that really must be understood because as we're gonna get onto in a moment why are they recommended or why are posterior pelvic tucks recommended so often, we'll see that the consequences of recommending and getting into the habit of doing pelvic tucks achieves all three of those things that I just said, which is not particularly something that you want to have if you've got a lower back injury. So if we just pause for a moment and just consider, the overwhelming majority of lower back problems are going to be caused by a degree of compression. You've put too much pressure through your lumbar spine, maybe lifting something. Maybe it's not particularly heavy, it's just that repetitive load over the years. Maybe it's sitting for extended periods, constantly driving pressure in a posterior pelvic position, slouching essentially, driving pressure through those discs and stretching all these ligaments out on the back of the spine. Maybe that's been how our back pain has come on. Maybe you're just at the point where you don't really know what happened to start it all, but one thing's for sure. The more you carry, the more it hurts. The more you have to carry and move around, it hurts. Bending hurts. Everything that, does, that, that replicates that forward bending movement at the level of the lumbar spine creates more pain and trouble. Sometimes those positions are fleetingly relieving, and we'll get to that a little bit, a little bit later on. But why are these positions recommended, or why are pelvic tucks recommended? Well, the first and foremost reason is that quite often, pelvic tucks and exercises like them, such as the knee hugs or sciatic flossing, that have the effect of giving us a posterior pelvic tuck, they open out the neural spaces in our lower lumbar spine. Down in the bottom, well, between all of the joints in the lumbar spine, or in, and the spine in general, you have these little exit foramina, where two vertebrae come together, the joint on the back and the disc on the front, and that creates a little hole. By doing a posterior pelvic tuck, we essentially make that hole larger. Now, whether it's a profuse disc bulge, a disc herniation that's the cause of your pain, or you've just strained the disc in some manner, alluding to compression that I mentioned earlier, there will be inflammation in and around that section of your lumbar spine. And that inflammation building up will create pressure and essentially the symptoms that you experience, be it back pain, be it hip pain, be it glute tightness, tenderness, be it, be it sciatica or pain into the hamstrings. And the buildup of inflammation in that confined little hole is problematic. And they know this, that if you do a pelvic tuck, then you will make that hole larger. And therefore immediately the pressure is relieved or alleviated on that area, not the injury relieved, just the pressure that's built up has been alleviated by making the hole larger. This is why sometimes people get into the trap of feeling comfortable on sitting, and therefore they're encouraged to do an activity that makes that hole larger, but actually makes the problem worse. So that's the first one. It's a short-sighted tactic that unfortunately gets you into bad habits because the more you're forward bending, the more you're reinforcing the pathological processes that led to that injury in the first place, a loss of the natural lordosis in your lumbar spine, a instilling of a posterior pelvic tilt, which destabilizes the sacroiliac joints, as I mentioned earlier, loads the discs more, and puts your lumbar spine and its muscles into a disadvantaged position relative to the better neutral position of the lumbar spine. And the second reason you're commonly recommended to do these sorts of pelvic tucks is going to be in the yoga or Pilates class scenario, and maybe some other exercises that are similar in their ethos. And that is because, or what is essentially happening there, is when you do that posterior pelvic tuck, you are forcing to stretch out. Everything is 
to, as, as much as you can to do that pelvic tuck so that when you lift your legs, and it's normally associated with a leg lifting activity, be it a leg raise, uh, sometimes with crunches as well, but mostly with leg raises or leg activities, bicycles, etc. As you lock up into flexion and you do that severe pelvic tuck, you decrease the likelihood and the ease with which your spine is pulled into an aggravating extension position. And we don't want extent extension positions, positions beyond neutral and back the other way to backward bending because those can also give sharp pain. So it's a blunt tool to teach you to not allow your spine to fall into extension. The problem is that when that is the only tool that you've been given, to control and stabilize your spine and stop your spine from falling into extension. Like happens, quite tangentially, but like often happens when people do sit-ups, when people do um, uh, leg raises, when people do planks, often they find their back hurts. And that's because they're not controlling the, the, the neutral position of their lumbar spine and they're letting it fall into extension when they're doing it and that's drying the back. So the way around this is we teach, a, or not we don't teach, people teach a posterior pelvic tuck to lock the spine into a flexed position so it can't fall into an extended position. When you learn that mechanism, that is the only way you can engage your core, is to do a pelvic tuck. Which means that when you're standing up and you think, oh, I should engage my core now before I do this lift, you do a posterior pelvic tuck to do so. And that does all those three things that I mentioned earlier. Loads the discs just before you lift something. It stretches out all the muscles just before you lift something so they're in a disadvantaged position. Oh, and it, and it disengages the sacroiliac joints at the same time. So if there's any twisting whatsoever, that's really gonna go through one of those sacroiliac joints more than the other. And that is gonna spell disaster. And that is why those habits, even when you're not lifting heavy loads, are creating micro trauma in the level of the lower back, re-aggravating that problem on a daily basis because you have to now unlearn because you've never been taught how to engage with a neutral spine. And that is why the pelvic tilts Posterior pelvic tucks are a very, very bad move. Now, what are you gonna do if you do have a posterior pelvic tilt? What can you do about it? Well, unfortunately, because of the inaccurate ways in which it's measured and the fact that it's made out to be quite a big thing and quite common, we have to first understand that most people will have normal alignment. And unless we validated it objectively on a standing x-ray, assume that you have normal alignment because physical examinations are so very inaccurate. So trying to change something is not helpful unless you have a verified answer that it is actually in this position to this degree and you know how to change it. But quite often the mechanisms, for example, with a, pel with a posterior pelvic tilt, you're going to have an injury probably associated at the level of L5S1 or L4-5. Those nerves control your glutes, your hamstrings, etc. So as long as that injury is going to prevail, you're going to have very limited effect, very limited luck in any long-term capacity actually stretching out the hamstrings meaningfully. You're much better off focusing on building core stability, learning to adjust your practices on a daily basis, learning to engage your core with a neutral spine. And as you do that and start to build those practices, your lower back will start to heal up the injury will start to callous up, will start to remodel, start to go through a normal uninterrupted healing process to the degree you've effectively removed those bad practices from your daily life because those are often the ones that are driving the problem much more than any other exercises that you're doing. It's the way in which you use your body on a daily basis, unfortunately. And once you start to do that, those factors like the nerve irritation, the nerve signals going down to the hamstring saying tighten up, will start to abate and that's when you can build strength, et cetera, further and maybe take a look back, if you have objective reason to do so, at how we can influence the balance between the hamstrings and the hip flexors and the rectus abdominis and the lower back muscles and the tightnesses and weaknesses that may be there that are contributing to the maintenance of that pelvic tilt. But until you get to that point, 
please don't worry about the fact that you may have been told you have a pelvic tilt. It's one of those badges that patients unfortunately wear and it's very difficult to take that badge off once it has been given. And therefore, just from experience over the years, the amount of people that have come in clinically and said, hey, I've, got pel I've been told 15 times that I've got pelvic tilt, posterior pelvic tilt, I do it all the time and I'm looking and going, mm, maybe, maybe not, we're gonna find out. Uh, and then we go and do an x-ray and we say, actually you don't. Unfortunately, you have the opposite or you actually go neutral and you've been doing all these activities that are actually making the problem worse. And quite equally, you get the opposite with people coming in convinced that they have anterior pelvic tilt from physical examinations and actually it turns out that's not the case. It's very difficult to actually predict it on a physical exam. What is going on in the spine and the true, honest pelvic anatomy and its variances, whether it's anterior or posteriorly tilted. So focus, number one, on your core strengthening and build some progress. If you have to look into your pelvic tilt and you're really concerned about it, get some proper measurements. Don't go on half, half, you know, half effort approaches. Get the proper measurements done and only look to address it once you've started to deal with the underlying problem of the back pain, got some healing momentum and built some strength. That is how you will have success. I do hope that you found today's podcast on posterior pelvic tilt and all the nuances of it helpful. There's much more we could go into and I'm sure after this there'll be some things that I should have covered that you can cover in the comments if you're watching on YouTube or if you're on the website you can comment in the section, the relevant sections below any questions you might have on your pelvic tilt or the nuances of pelvic tilt and why people have been prescribed pelvic tilts in the past. Maybe you have too. But thank you so much for watching us. If you've joined us on video, whether it's Spotify or whether it's YouTube, then hopefully some of those demonstrations are really helpful. Make sure you can always sign up to our Sunday newsletter which is where we push out these articles, this podcast, every single Sunday on a different topic. And if you are someone struggling with your lower back, you've got pain, you've been told about these pelvic tilt things, consider clicking a button somewhere under here, either in the description or on this page, to learn a little bit more about how the Back and Shape program can help you, like it's helped so many others with this and many other sources of lower back pain. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you in next week's episode.